Starting, starting from the last Sunday, we have been studying the life of Samuel. Do you remember what was the significance of Samuel to Israel? Anybody? Samuel was the last judge and the first prophet. And he was a kingmaker who provided a critical leadership like a bridge during the transition time of Israel from the unstable tribal society to a centralized world of a monarchy. The first story of uh, this critical spiritual leader of Israel was about his mother and her faith. Hannah, mother of Samuel, she embodied faithfulness. And I just want to remind, remind everyone that her story was not about someone who fervently prayed for and then got finally what she wanted. That's not what Hannah's inspired us. Hannah's story was about seeking God in the midst of her problem and seeing God remembering her and ultimately surrendering herself and her gift to God and for his kingdom. You know, if you remember, she found the peace from God before she conceived her son. That means her peace came from God, not from her own fulfillment. Her peace came from the giver before the gift. There is a huge difference where we find our satisfaction, whether in our gift or the giver. And I, want, I really pray that everyone, you find the peace without God, the ultimate giver. Because God gave us his son, Jesus Christ, for all of us, all of us. So whether you have whatever, you know, Samuel in your life or not, you have an ultimate son. Because God is ultimate giver to all of us. And the story of Hannah actually ends with a great song. And uh, we didn't have time to study it. But good news is that I'm going to bring back the song during our uh, Advent. Because song of Hannah reflect or echoes the song of Mary, the Magnificat. There was an incredible connection between two songs. Now, the second story about the life of Samuel that we're going to look at today is a parenting. Here in the second half of chapter 2 and the following chapters, we see the story of Samuel interwoven with that story of the priest's eldest son, at least two sons, especially Hophni and Phinehas. And as you will see, the writer of the book of Samuel had an intention, serious intention of defeating the stark contrast between Eli's son and Hannah's child Samuel. So I entitled today's sermon, A Tale of Two Children, Tale of Two Children. And uh, the title reminds you of a well-known work by Charles Dickinson called Tale of Two Cities, which is about the French Revolution and then Reign of Terror during the time. Do you guys remember that, uh, the opening lines of that uh, famous novel? I think uh, you know, that was one of the best opening lines of uh, all classical literature. Let me just read quickly. It was the best of the times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, age of foolishness. It was the epoch of, epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity. It was season of light, it was season of darkness, and so on. I really like these opening lines of Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities, because it seems like they, that describes our time, not just his time. We see the best and the worst in our time. I believe that we are living in the most critical time in human history. Let me repeat that. I think we live in the most critical time in human history. With all the technological advancement that, that connect us, yet all the potential disasters that are lurking at us because of human greed and ambition. 
We hear a lot about Venezuela, especially in our church, because of our mission partners in Venezuela. And then, you know, I'm from Venezuela, and then you heard the story from me. You know, Venezuela, the most uh, blessed country, the richest country one time in South America with uh, incredible natural resources. But now it is the most devastated country with a man-made disaster. The number one global migration struggle is a Venezuelan. Four million Venezuelans are wandering all over the South American continent. And that their story, I don't think it's an isolated story. It can be a story of any country or anybody. Just like them, if we don't focus on God, and if we succumb to greed and corruption, guess what? Venezuela will be everybody's story. I think we are living in such a, you know, we are so blessed with the technology, science, all kinds of things. Yet, just like Venezuela, if we are driven by our own greed and uh, our own ambition, we can also experience a man-made disaster. Now, 1 Samuel chapter 2, the part that we're going to read today, we will see the contrast between life of Samuel and the life of uh, uh, Eli's, Eli's son. And uh, they, are, they, are, they are stated uh, interwoven, not a parallel in a way, but interwoven. So one way, one hand, on the one hand, the life of Samuel is uh, presented as a moving increasingly toward a maturity in favor with a God and people. In contrast, the life of Eli's son portrayed is an increasingly scandalous term. So the story we're going to see, we see like a cross, I mean crossroad of a, you know, a, the poles of a declining favor and the increasing favor of God. And the question I have to, I, I want to pose to all of us, is so what makes some of us faithful and some of us faceless? What makes our children very faithful and productive and, uh, and some makes, what makes some of our children compromised and fruitless? Let me give you the outline today. The sons of Eli, they are simply religious yet pagan. They are privileged, but they are very carnal. Their story comes from First uh, Samuel chapter 2, verse 12 to, I'm going to read over 17 first, so let me read quickly. Uh, Eli's sons were scoundrel. They had uh, no regard for the Lord. Now it was a practice of the priest that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and while the meat was being boiled, and they would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever fork brought up the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept the boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said to him, let the fat be burned first, and then take whatever you want, servant would answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. The sin of a young man was very great in the Lord's sight, they, for they were treating the Lord's offering with a contempt. The first statement about the Eli's son, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, uh, was a sweet judgment in verse 12. They were scoundrel, and they had no regard for the Lord. You know, King James Version is uh, closer to the Hebrew text, and the King James Version said, sons of Eli's were sons of Belial, and they knew not the Lord. The word uh, scoundrel, or some translation had it worthless, actually literally, sons of Belial. What is the sons of Belial? It's the sons of Baal. Baal is a god in 
god of fertility, the pagan you know, deity that Canaanite worship. This is a god of uh, agriculture, god of uh, farmers. You know, tragic story about sons of uh, Eli was that they were Israelite. They are not ordinary Israelite. They are from the tribe of Levi. They are, cho they are the priest family whose main job was to know God and serve the Lord and they teach the law. But they are serving the Lord without knowing the Lord. That's a very scary thing. They are religious without the reverence. They are faithful without the fear of the Lord. Here, I find them uh, three problems in this story. One, in what ways that they were pagan? First of all, we just read the story. They were treating Lord's offering, sacrifice as what? Purely as a, just a meal. For them, sacrifice to God was nothing but a barbecue party. According to Old Testament law, they were supposed to the, the burn the fat for the Lord, and then priests get the breast and the right thigh, and then the worshipers, they get the rest of the food, you know, and then share among their family members. So this sacrifice commanded by the Moses represents three things. Atonement of sin through the death of an innocent animal, right? Ultimately point out to the Lamb of God who takes the sins of the world, our Lord Jesus Christ. And then fellowship with one another. And then also there is a consecration part. This wonderful holy occasion was completely degenerated by Eli's son to a carnal feast and religious transaction. For them, getting a good meat portion and the cooking, you know, barbecuing the best as you could and then enjoying the, the meat. That was all, all that matters. All that matters. This is a serious because if you look at the Hannah song in previous, in the, chap, in the earlier part of chapter 2, especially last verse of a Hannah song, chapter 2, verse 10, this is what Hannah said. Once again, I'm reading a King James is somehow in this story is a much better translation than NIV. So let me read a King James. Hannah prayed that the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces out of heaven, that God will thunder upon them, and Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Now, last prayer of Hannah was a God overcome the adversaries and punish them and judge them. And then next story. What's the first enemy or adversary of the God we find in the book of Samuel? If you remember, book of Samuel introduces the Philistines and their struggle with Israel. Do or die kind of struggle for a long time. But the first enemy of God we find in the story is who? It's not a Philistine. It was Israelite. Not just any Israelite. It was children of priests. Does that bring you uh, some kind of fear? I don't know about you, but uh, I'm not a priest. I'm a pastor, but uh, you know, some people think I'm a priest, so I'll take it. I'm a you know, full-time religious worker. This is not somebody's story. It's story of us. They were worse than pagans, because the pagans didn't know God. They don't receive the Moses' teaching. These are the children born in the professional clergy family and learn about the word. I'm, I bet they went to the Sunday school, yet their behavior is a completely, completely pagan. Let me, before I bring it out, everything else, let me bring it out the one more thing about their, their things. Look at the later, verse 22. Now Eli... The father, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel. And then the second thing they did, they not only totally destroyed this uh, holy sacrifice, but they, how they slept with a woman who served at the entrance to the tent of a meeting. 
They were fornicating with those ladies are serving in the temple. Now, this was actually common practice. This would have been common in the pagan fertility culture at the time. Because actually, Temple of Baal, there is a shrine or temple prostitute. And it was actually very common for the pagan priest to sleep with this prostitute. Actually, Baal worship is that uh, it's a very sexual worship. The reason Israelites, not only Canaanite, but Israelites love that you know, Baal worship, because it justifies the temple prostitution. Because they believe Baal and Asherah, God and Goddess, when they have intercourse, and that's how the you know, product of that is the rain and everything, and then all the crops are coming. They had a, this a very sexual theology. And they, the, the priests and the temple you know, uh, prostitutes, they, they enacted, and they encouraged the, all the, the Baal worshippers to participate there. Israel don't have a, such a fertility faith, a fertility theology, or sexual theology. Yet the sons of Eli, they converted God's holy tent or tabernacle or pre-temple into a fertility, pagan fertility sex shop. Now, I want to bring out a term that we all need to know. It's a Latin word for the corruptio optimi is a pessima. Corruptio optimi is a pessima. It means a corruption of the best is the worst. Corruption of the best is the worst. The worst corruption comes from the corruption of the the best. When best is corrupted or compromised, the worst comes out. You know, greatest sinners in this world that we witness, actually, in the people who had a devastating effects on others, many times, you know, oftentimes it came from the so-called Christian family or Christian tradition. It's not those, uh, you know, non-religious, you know, non-Christian. We have a more problem with the Christian sinners than non-Christian sinners. Let me just give an example. Joseph Stalin, did you know he even went to the seminary? He was seminary dropout. You know, he was actually, he went to seminary because he was smart and that, that was a very privileged education and he wanted to score. He actually memorized the Bible so well that he received a lot of compliments from his uh, church leaders, and they recommend him to go to seminary. He couldn't, his family couldn't offer it, but he had a special scholarship to go to seminary. And then he became the, the most, one of the most ruthless dictators of the 20th century. 30 million Russians were killed. And what about the, you know, uh, Adolf Hitler? He's a Lutheran, he's a German. He grew up, he went to church every Sunday. And the first thing the Nazis were compromised was actually German church. What about the North Korea? Did you know the, 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 the grandfather of Kim Jong-un, Kim Il-sung's mother, was a very devout deaconess in the church? And the North Korean ideology is a total perversion of a Christian theology. First time I went to North Korea and um, so, so the North Korean side from Chinese border, there was a big slogan said, our great leader is always with us. Instead of Emmanuel, Jesus is our Emmanuel, they said Kim Il-sung is our Emmanuel. That's right after his you know, death. No, people say North Korea is a cult nation. What cult that is from? From Christianity. What about the South America? Once again, Latin America's, you know, the problem of corruption, it came from perverted gospel. When conquistadores, the Spanish, you know, con you know uh, colonizers came to South America, they preached the gospel while they're stealing the gold and they're killing Indians and then establishing churches. Roman Catholic Church, 
Sure, we will be judged severely by God for all the corruption in South America. Now, what about us? We are not all those horrible people, but you know what? I've said this before. I will say it again, repeat, and I want to join everybody. Children who are growing up in the church without knowing the Lord, that is the most scary part of, that's the that's saddest tragedy. You know, as a pastor, I'm specially, specially, you know, alarmed, alarmed when I meet with the children of church leaders, missionaries' kids, pastors' kids, we call MK and PK, elders' kids, EK, you know. In Baptist case, it's a ordained, you know, deacon's kid, ODK, you know. I have all the names, you know why? Because First time in my ministry, I met a, a PD, pastor's daughters. There was a four pastor's daughters in my first ministry. They were most selfish, self-serving, manipulative people that I know. I don't want to ask me after this, you know. I'll give you the taste of the sinners. <laughs> I'm serious. I have three daughters. That four sisters always in the back of my mind. They grew up in the church. They know the church business. They know which button to pull to get what they wanted. And so calculating, so cunning. When it really counts to serving people, they are out. When it's for their own self-interest, they are in. By the way, I'm not a you know, biased uh, PKs, okay? I know we have some PKs here. Some of PKs I understand because they come up with uh, baggages. Because of their parents went through some typical ministry sometimes, they have some baggages. I'm, I'm really, really, you know, I, because I, you know, my, I have uh, three PDs at home, I'm very sensitive. And I, to be honest, you know, I really care about the all the children of the church leaders and pastors. But point is this. You are in more danger than others. Unless you really know the Jesus Christ in, your, in, the, his, in the heart of God through Jesus Christ, you are in danger. Because you, you, you see in church business more than others. And this is what I meant that is the most important BIP in our church. In our church, those of you new in our church, BIP means not just a very important people, but uh, important, you know, uh, the, the non-Christian that we need to reach out with the gospel. It's our children. They heard the gospel, but they need to see the gospel. Do you think uh, Hophni and Phineas they don't think they know. They know the scripture. They know the scripture. They're children of Eli. But Bible says they don't know the Lord. I think this is a warning call for all of us. Time to seriously reflect what we do as a church. We cannot go through casual you know, motions of a you know, weekly church, you know, ministry and say that we're doing our best. No, that's not enough. We have to make sure that our children know the heart of God. This is why we, you know, we pray for people to participate in children's ministry and youth ministry. And by grace of God, our youth ministry is getting, you know, organized and being more established. And now we have a weekly, you know, youth house church. But that's not enough. How do you know that the weekly you know, house churches, youth house churches, really gelling, spiritually growing experience? You know, today's story, the two brothers, they are crime partners in spiritual crime, right? They're partners in crime. These guys fed each other in the wrong way. I've seen that in the youth. Individually, many youth are okay, but when you put together, there is, a, you know, the simple chemistry comes out. I'm in the church. I've seen the, you know, I, I, I bear testimony. When I came, when we moved to Dallas, we actually uh, uh, shopped for the church. 
We went to several churches because we want to find a church good for my children who are youth at the time. And then a couple churches we went to, the youth was so cliquish that we didn't, you know, that's why we left those good churches. We liked the adults, you know, ministry, but because of the youth didn't welcome our children, so we left. So youth, do you know, you guys have a, you are the sort of a, you are the major attraction or distraction of our church. Seriously. And I really pray that don't just, you know, participate or come to the whatever program we said. This is your program. You should take ownership. And then, you know, serious challenge we have here. We're just a five-year-old church. Youth, you know, by grace of God, we have a, now even the David and Joshua are graduating, even after them, we have a, almost 12 youth. 12 youth. And then behind them, 30 plus children, plus, you know, all the, you know, the to be pregnant. They are, they are, they are, they are roaring behind them. Our time is running out. So when you come to house church, I hope you don't just come to house church and talk to each other and talk about how can he make it better. You don't have to do what we tell you to do. You know, even though we, we give you right and all that, but you are totally driver's seat, not us. Tell us what you want to do. And you don't have to meet even weekly. Someone I know busy. So you want to do some other activity, creative activity? Take ownership. This is your, your legacy and your ministry. And behind you, we have all those little kids you saw in the, our annual picture. They are your, they, they're going to they're gonna follow your footstep. So don't ever think that I'm in this church because my parents attend this church. This is your church that God let you. Are you going to be Hophni and Phineas or are you going to be Samuel? I hope our, we have a great youth group right now. I just pray that as they are smart in school, I pray that they also smart with each other and encourage and challenge each other and create the spiritual you know, chemistry. This will be a great, great legacy. You know, you're weekly coming to the house church and then sharing and encouraging each other honestly and even pointing out each other's problem and then, you know, challenge each you know, other person. Those things will build up this church. Let me bring quickly the problem of uh, Elias and the last problem. Their last problem is that verse 25. Eli rebuked them, but verse 25 said, they would not listen to the voice of their father. And then Bible said, for it was will of God to put them to death. I want to be clear. Because you don't listen to the voice of father in case, you know, God will not put you to death, okay? If that, ha if that was true, we should have that many times already, but that, that's not what the text was saying. You know, text like this calls us to really uh, do exegesis carefully. Whenever you have a problem in text like this, let me recommend you. You have to read this kind of problem passage in light of a larger scripture. And also, number two, read in the literary context, okay? Literary context means a theological, you know, theology behind. So let me say this. Some people, especially in the classical, you know, uh, some Calvinists, they say this is, uh, you know, proof text for the, you know, uh, predestination or double predestination. It was God's will to put them to death. And then, in that case, uh, how do you, you know, how do you, uh, uh, how do you jive this passage with other passages like Ezekiel 18.23? God said, do I have any pleasure at all? The wicked should die, says the Lord. And not that he should turn from his ways and live. God never takes a pleasure in the death of the wicked. What God wants every sinner is to, to repent and turn and live. Ezekiel, once again, 33.11. God said to them, as I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Can it be clearer than this? But the wicked turned from his way and lived. Turn, turn from your evil ways. And why should you die, O house of Israel? 
God's will for wicked or anybody is clear. And the first Peter 3:18 in the New Testament said clearly that Christ also suffered once for sin, righteous for unrighteous, or sometimes just for unjust, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body and made alive in the spirit. Jesus died for all the unrighteous, wicked people. If you look at the second Peter 3:8, even God said the Lord for Lord one day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like one day. Lord is not uh, is not slow keeping his promise, but as some understand slowness, instead is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Lord is even God is delaying the second coming of Christ. Not because he forgot the promise or slow to keep the promise, but to give everyone, especially wicked ones, to chance to repent. So it is not God's will to kill them. Let me say this clearly. Then what does it mean? It means literary context in the Bible. In the Bible, Old Testament, you, you run to this kind of passage. If you look at the Second Peter, uh, Second Samuel chapter 24, verse 1, there's a passage like this. Anger of the Lord burned against Israel. He incited or provoked David against them, saying they go and take a census of Israel and Judah. And for that, David paid a dear price. Many people died because of David's sin over pride. But here, in the Second Samuel 24, the God incited David to do that. And then God punished David. Does it make sense to you? Same story in, was uh, reported, described differently in the First Chronicle 21. First Chronicle was uh, one of the last history books written after the, you know, Samuel was an earlier history book. Here, Satan rose up against Israel, incited David to take a sense of Israel. Same event, but described differently. That's so why, in the initial, the earlier story, made a God as author of a, you know, even a wicked thing. At the time, main theology was, they want to point out that God is sovereign. Everything under God's control. That was a main theological theme. When first history of Israel was written, Israel was, a, you know, Israel was in exile. They lost their homeland. They lost almost hope. In that time, the way that the historians of a Jewish historians are saying that God is in control of everything, even bad things are under his control. Because especially in Babylon, there was a dualism. There was a, you know, there is a God of, there was a two kinds of power in this world, good and evil, always fighting together forever. Zoroastrianism is one of those religions. And the Jewish people said, there is a no to God. There is only one God who controls everything. In that kind of theology, they bring the history different description. So what this story actually means? They would not listen to the voice of their father for it was the will of the Lord to put them death. Simply saying they are so incorrigible. They are so bent in their depraved and pagan way that eventually they will suffer the consequence of their sins according to moral order created, meditated by God. Bible said, some passage in the Bible says, your sin will find you. Sin that we committed will grow. Without repentance, without asking God to remove and forgive, those sin will grow and hunt us down. Now, the most tragic person in this story is Eli. If you look at the verse 27, now a man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what the law says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestors' family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor out of all the tribe of Israel to be my priest, to go to my altar, to burn incense, to wear the effort in my presence. I also gave your ancestors' family all the food offerings presented by Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribe for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me? By fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people, Israel. This is a, by the way, 
Once again, if God going to God's will to kill the allies and why in the world God send his prophet in a man, certain man of God, to Eli and warn about his sons and rebuke his parenting. God never wills anyone to any even wicked people to die of their sin. God wants to everybody to return, turn and leave. Now, Eli is a tragic person because he's totally convicted by God. He even tried. But guess what? That's all he did. If you knew, if God sends you somebody and they bring the, your children's problem, what do you do? You don't just uh, have a talk with a, you know, with a child and then leave. You talk, you keep your eyes, you stay on the course until they change their life, their way of life. He just talked to them. And he, when they didn't listen to him, he stopped. He just took it as a, you know, reality. And Bible, God said what? Why do you honor your sons more than me? I think this is a call to all the suburban parents. Parents in suburbia. People, the parents who are living in the North Dallas. This is a God's warning to all of us. Do we honor our children more than God? Do we cater to their wish more than God's will for them? Our pastor said, we should worry about not, not about the fear of a failure, but the fear of a succeeding things that don't matter to God. I feel very, you know, I feel very convicted when I heard the statement because oftentimes what I worry about my kids, I confess, it was very, very carnal. It don't matter what college they go to, what grade they get. You know, those things are important, but they are not ultimate important. As long as they study hard and honestly and they don't cheat and then they, you know, they take a test and whatever they get and whatever college they go. And uh, since we have uh, high school students, you talk, most of our um, adult members are college, you, you talk to them, they will tell you one thing. College degree, college name lasts only few, four years. Not more than that. Once you start working, it's not what college you're from, but how well you prepare to work. How well you work with other people. Let us not succeed in the things that don't matter to God. We need to really succeed in things that matter to God and our children and their life. So that's the Eli's son story. And uh, just, we'll see next time, that, I mean, the two, few weeks from now that those uh, prophecy came that one day they die on the same day. I'll save that time, that story later. Now let me go too quickly to Samuel. If Eli's son was religiously privileged, yet they are carnal and pagan, Samuel was innocent, yet important. He's a clueless, yet critical. Let's look at the story of Samuel together. Verse 20, verse 18 to 21, let's read together. One, two, three. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord. A boy wearing a linen effort. Each year his mother made him a little roll and took it to him. And when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice, Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, saying, May the Lord give you children by this woman to take a place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home. And the Lord was gracious to Hannah, and she gave a birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Amen. Story of Samuel starts with a but, verse 18. That means a deliberate, the writer trying to bring our attention. Do not lose a hope. Even though the official priests are not doing the job, that doesn't mean God is not working. God is working. God is preparing the future priests. And that future priest, faithful servant of God, 
was a little boy named Samuel. Verse 18, the New Living Bible Translation actually caught the nuance of the word better. But Samuel, though he was only a boy, served the Lord. He wore linen garments like that of the priest. What was Samuel doing at the temple as a little child? Probably he was just a kid and he was doing a menial task. You know, uh, next time we see him, that uh, he, was a, he was opening gate of the tent for other people to come in. He was doing just a little things. Nobody noticed about Samuel. He was no big deal. It's just a little, little kid, cute, you know. Probably people are, oh, yeah, boy, you know. I mean, it's like uh, our, children, our Sunday school kid. You know, when they're saying a song and when they memorize a verse, aren't they cute? You know, that's what Samuel was. But guess what? He was sincere, and God took him seriously. And Bible said, he was ministering before the Lord. He was a child doing an innocent thing, but to God, it was a ministry. Isn't that amazing? Children, they can do ministry. I must say, children can do ministry better than adults. Children can do, they do, they witness better than us. Let me give you the proof. Last week, Beth, I will not say, I will not say, that Beth Kim sent this, you know, uh, 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 text Friday. My kids are witnessing. They kept inviting their nanny to our house church and they made a promise to come next time. Ha ha. I was tempted to say, what is aha? Where is your repentance? <laughs> You're the shepherd. I mean, thank God, you know, I mean, praise God, you're doing a great parent work. Children are sacred weapon of our house church ministry. Because uh, most parents care about children. We meet, I heard uh, in the house church conference that through children, they meet a lot of VIPs. So going to children's activities is a great activities, you know? Because uh, children is our common ground. Then the most parents, even non-Christian parents, they care about the children. So some of our house churches have so many kids, and then when you know adults complain, they oh, Pastor Paul, we don't know, what, you know, we couldn't talk really, uh, you know, because there's so much noise and they're crazy. Our children is crazy. If children have a great time at your house church, you have a potential. Don't. Quench that there are joy in the children. Children can do great ministry. And now, I was almost uh, thought about the, you know, the conversation at the, between the uh, Jack Black and the principal in the School of Rock, those of you. He, he became a you know, substitute teacher for, you know, and then principal said, oh, what's your philosophy of uh, teaching? And then he said, I think children are our future. Teach them well, and I think let them lead the way. And that was, they came later, I found I was, came from the Whitney Houston song, Greatest Love of All. And then, you know, the rest of them, it's a very spiritual. Show them all the beauty they possess inside. Give them a sense of pride to make it easier. Let the children laugh to remind us how we used to be. You know, I feel like this is a spiritual song for the house church. Let the children lead the way. You know? Now, about the Samuel and Hannah. Every Samuel didn't have that normal family blessing. She didn't grow up. She didn't see her mom and dad. He didn't see her mom and dad every day. He saw them only once a year. When if you were Samuel, do you think, you know, would you be like a Samuel? I wouldn't. I bet Samuel would probably say, why can I grow up like other kids? Why can I, you know, uh, why, why am I living in this, you know, place with the strangers? Why do you see me only once a year? If I was Samuel, I bet I had a loneliness. 
And, you know, I bet each time Hannah met Samuel, Samuel and Hannah, I bet Hannah, the mother, said this, Son, you are born as a result of God's mercy and grace to me. You are not an ordinary child. You are born with a promise. Your birth is more than natural. It's greater than man-made. You are a child destined for God's glory. You are the true destiny's child. But that's my kid. You are a miracle child. You belong to God. And this little rope that I made, every time I weave, I pray for you. Don't forget who you belong to. You are serving the greatest God, the only true God. Samuel, though he grew up in a very lonely and difficult place, he grew up with the prayers of a mother. Do you think you know, Hannah was just visiting her once a year? You know, she poured her heart to God more every day for Samuel. So regardless of where your children are, parents, we have a great hope if we pray for them. If you think your child is not going straight, good news today is that you cry out to the ultimate parent, our Heavenly Father. And God will hear your prayer and touch him. Now let me bring last comment, last point about Samuel. That is verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature, in favor with the Lord, and also with man. Here we can see the echo of the New Testament. When you hear this verse, what other verse in the New Testament you are reminded of? Luke chapter 2, verse 52. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature in favor with the God and man. Exactly. Luke, by the way, writer, gospel, the gospel, the uh, writer of the gospel of Luke, the Luke, he really like, he mustn't like this story so much. The you is uncanny. The story of Samuel is reconfigured and expressed in the life of Jesus. And here we see two important things about spiritual growth. We are all child of God. And when we say we are all child of God, that means many things, but one thing that I want us all to ask is, am I growing or not? We expect a child, you know, when you call somebody child, that means growing. The job of a child is a growing well, right? That's what I, you know, I don't expect my child to earn money, even though she's these days, she takes them, you know, money by, you know, but working part-time. But a child's job is a growing. So question is, are we growing? You know, evangelical Christians, we talk about born again. Born again implies a grow again. We all born again? Then how about growing again? Are we growing well? Two spiritual growth this passage really tells us is this. Samuel continued to grow in favor of the Lord and also with men. That means true spiritual growth is a relational growth. Spiritual growth more than anything else, is a relational growth. And here is my confession. For me, spiritual growth was more of intellectual growth. When I came to the United States as a college student and then began to attend the church for the first time, I was so hungry for spiritual growth. And I lacked so much knowledge about the Bible and the Christian theology and so forth. So, you know, I spent the time in the library and the Christian bookstore and the Christian books. I thought the more I know the Bible, the better I will be the Christian. That trajectory lasts forever that I even got the you know, PhD, but you know what, now this is what I believe. I know a lot, but it doesn't matter. It's not how much I know, but how much I love people. You know, it is, many people think that I'm a very social and gregarious and outgoing. I love party. I do, but it's all miracle of God. I used to like a book more than people. 
My sister, I will, my sister gave her testimony that anytime you know, Bible study is done and my friends are going to fellowship activities, I was always out. Any social activities are out because I thought that's a waste of time. But now, call me. If there is some, you know, some party is going, please call me. You know, because real spiritual growth is not, a, of course, by the way, we call, I'm not saying intellectual you know, knowledge is not important. We cannot serve the Lord without knowing the God's word, right? And uh, you will learn in the, in the, in the fall, we're going to the book of, we're going to study the uh, letter to Ephesus and we will know being filled with the Holy Spirit implies being filled with the Holy Scripture. You cannot separate the Holy Spirit from the Holy Scripture. Spirit and the Scripture go together. That is the true charismatic. So more than anybody, I believe in the power of the truth. But know this. Knowledge is not just for the sake of an intellectual curiosity or your deepening you know, theology. It's all about loving other people with confidence and then, you know, faith. That's why we called our adult discipleship program Good Shepherd College. What's the goal of learning all these classes? So that you can be a good shepherd to other people. You can love others with the right sense of direction. So Cornerstone, John Discipleship, Livingstone Bible Study, all this ultimately is about us to examine our relationship and make us a more loving person. Number two, spiritual growth is not only relational growth, but also balanced growth. Here, Samuel grew in stature, that means uh, physically, in favor, with, in favor with the Lord, spiritual and intellectual, and also with the people, social. Spiritual growth is a balanced growth. Physical, intellectual, social, spiritual, all combined together. That's why house church once again matters. This is why the, the forest of you know, Paul is not just a, a, a social event. It's more than that. If we are not socially connected, if we cannot have fun together, we can share spiritually deep things. Families don't play together, they don't stay together. Husband and wife, they want to have a healthy marriage, they need to learn, they need to have a common, you know, joy or habit or recreation. Let me close the message. Today we saw two children at the same temple. The outcome was so different. Both were called by God. One didn't appreciate the call. What kind of children are we raising in our church, in our family? And before we answer that question, what kind of children of God are we? Are we growing sincerity and sense of a mission like a Samuel? Or are we like the Eli's sons? We have a form of godliness, but we don't have we haven't tasted the power of godliness. Let us pray.